Here's God's word. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines grew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shelai, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shelai and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever has, have, has happened before, rather. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from this battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, She bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, 
Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Our second reading today is Acts chapter 17. Verses 29 to 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Andrew. Good morning. We haven't met before. My name's Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, now, my wife, Sky, uh, she tells a really great story about uh, when her grandma first got married. Now, uh, it was the first night that her grandma and her grandfather were at home together as a, a new married couple, and her grandfather did something that he'd never done before to that point in their relationship. He sat down at the dinner table. It was nighttime. He took his fork and he started to chime it on his glass. Ding, 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 ding. Never done it before in his relationship. And at first she thinks, no, this is, a, this is a joke. But no, he's serious. The reason that he's chiming on his glass is because it's dinner time. And it's time for my wife to make me dinner. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> As it turns out, his father had done the same thing when he was growing up, so that's where he learnt the little trick from. A short time later, in comes his young wife. She's carrying a piping hot plate of spaghetti. And she takes it over to him, and in a smooth motion, upends it straight into his lap. He says, what are you doing? And she says, well, what are you doing? Waiting for my dinner. Well, there you have it. And finally, she adds, I am not your maid, I am not your servant, and if this is what you keep doing, then this is what you're going to get. I love it. Now, we're going to see a similar moment today between Israel and their God. 1 Samuel chapter 4. They make a similar mistake to Sky's grandfather. He made a wrong assumption about what he was entitled to as a result of the marriage covenant. Right, I'm a married man, my wife makes me dinner now. All I need to do is hit this glass. The Israelites similarly make a wrong assumption about what they're entitled to as a result of God's covenant with them. Well, because we're his people, we can make him do this. We're going to see their problem is actually not just this wrong assumption about the covenant, but actually wrong assumptions about God himself and the way that he works. 
And there's something in this for us, of course, as well. What if you have wrong assumptions about God? What if you assume that he works in certain ways, but you're wrong? What then? And what should you do about it? Well, we'll answer those questions as we dive in today, but first let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the privilege it is that, that you've revealed yourself to us through your word. And we ask this morning simply that you would open minds, hearts, eyes, ears to see, think, hear, feel as you would have us do. And Lord, as we are shaped by you, that we would live the way that you so desire. In Jesus' name, amen. You got your Bible there, open up with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We've been tracing our way through 1 Samuel as a church for a few weeks in now, if you're new with us. And at the beginning of this story in 1 Samuel 4, it's a true story, but it is a story and we're thrown into the heat of battle, right at the climax of the story. Israel is at war with their constant enemies, the Philistines, and it's not going so well. The first wave of the Israelite soldiers, 4,000 of them, lie dead on the battlefield. But that can't be right, think the Israelites. We're God's people. He's meant to defend us. He's meant to give us victory, especially over our enemies. They're his enemies too. What's gone wrong? And then in verse 3, the elders, the spiritual heads of the people, ask a question that hangs heavy in the air. Take a look at it there in your Bible, verse 3. And when the people came to the camp... It's the end of the day, they've lost the battle, or at least the first skirmish. The elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Good question. It's actually a question containing a, an abundance of insight. This isn't just the Philistines that have turned their hands against us today. It's Yahweh. It's our God. God himself is actually bringing judgment. He has orchestrated this defeat. Why would he do that? Well, the elders should know the answer. As we saw last week, things are rotten in the state of Israel. Remember Phineas and Hophni, the rotten priests over Israel. What were they doing? They were stealing from the offering and the sacrifices that the people were bringing they were abusing women in the temple. Horrible leaders. And not only that, their father, Eli, the high priest, he was failing to discipline them. Things are very rotten in the state of Israel, particularly in their leadership. And so God isn't fighting for them. He's actually bringing judgment and discipline. But no sooner have the elders asked, why is God doing this? then they propose a very simple solution to their problem. Take a look at the second half of verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? Ah, well, what should we do? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And this box, the Ark of the Covenant, if you're not familiar, uh, it was a, a box, a golden box that God had had his people make when they were out in the, uh, the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt, it was supposed to symbolize his presence with them. And so they'd carry the ark, the priest would carry the ark in front of the people, 
God would send a cloud over it during the day and a fire over it during the night so they would know that he and his power are with them, right? That was the ark. And so the Israelites here are thinking, well, if this ark that symbolizes God's presence and power for us did all that in the past, then we should bring it to the front line. Because remember, back when we crossed from the wilderness into the promised land, we had to cross the Jordan. It was flowing with water and God told us to put the ark before us and the water all dried up. It went up as two walls and we walked across dry land. Wow, if we put the ark in front of us, God will do that again. And remember when we went into battle against Jericho, we circled the city seven times over seven days. The ark of the covenant was out the front. And then when we gave that mighty shout, the walls came tumbling down. Ah, so if we get the ark out in front of us again then God will do the same thing. Certainly, the ark will save us again. So imagine the moment when they bring the ark to the front lines. When the Israelites see it, they let out a mighty shout. The earth itself shakes with their victory cry. Here's their ace in the hole, right? Their secret weapon for the battle. Now, from their point of view, the battle's now won. We've got the ark on the front lines. God's going to bless us. And besides, take a look at who's leading the ark into battle. Ah, our wonderful priests, Phineas and Hophni. Nothing's going to go wrong, surely. (laughs) Except, of course, that's exactly what happens. Everything falls apart. Take a look there at verse 6. See, the Philistines, they hear the noise of the shouting that the ark is coming, and they go, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? They learn that the Ark of the Covenant's coming. And then verse 7, they say, a God has come into the camp. They believe that there are many gods. So they hear, oh, this is the Israelite God, the one who destroyed Jericho, the one who saved them from Egypt, the one who sent plagues. This is a fearsome God indeed. And so men, straighten your spines. We've got to fight with everything we've got. Because if we lose this battle against this God... We'll be their slaves or we'll die. So do everything you can. Fight like your life depends on it. And so they do. And, you know, sometimes today we say that someone is a a Philistine. You know, when when sometimes we use that phrase and we mean they're a bit simple. They're they're not very good with technology or something like that. And so we say, oh, they're a Philistine. But actually, the Philistine army was very, very fearsome. They had pretty advanced weaponry, uh, used uh, iron instead of bronze. So they're a mighty army. And as they see the Ark of the Covenant, this thing that's supposed to demoralize them, instead, it makes them fight even harder. The secret weapon backfires. And here's what happens in verse 10. Take a look. Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. One minute, they're shaking the earth with their victory cry. The next, they're shaking in their boots. And then they're melting back home to hide in their bedroom closets. Thousands of Israelites die in battle. Phineas and Hophni die standing next to the ark. It's a catastrophic defeat for Israel. The secret weapon backfires and what's worse, now it's fallen into the hands of the enemy. From the Israelites' perspective, it's like they've captured God from us. Now, what went wrong? 
Why didn't God give his people victory here? He'd done it so many times before. So why not now? We'll come back again to verse 3 and take a look closely at the words of the elders. Remember, they concluded that God was bringing judgment here. He was disciplining them. And what do they propose as the solution? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. That it may come. Not he, not God, it. This box. Bring it and it will save us. What's the problem? They're objectifying God. They're reducing him in his presence and power to an object. In one sense, they're treating God like a bit of a, a trophy or like a talisman, a lucky charm, a weapon that you can hold and wield and bring into battle. And in that scenario, who's in control? Is it them or God? It's them. God is something that we move about and we position where we will and he does what we want in the direction that we want it. They're the ones in control. It's much like that scene from the first Indiana Jones movie, and you can see the scene there up on the screen. That's a direct green grab, by the way, from the movie. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I didn't want to put the scene up there because it's actually quite scary. <laughs> but there's, there's that scene where uh, Indiana Jones' psychic says, an army which carries the Ark of the Lord before it is invincible. Makes for good cinema, but the Israelites actually believe it to be true. Carry the ark in front of us, we won't lose. And this is actually how the whole ancient world thought about gods. So say you're having a rough time in the ancient Near East. Your crops aren't growing. Your farming's not working. And you think, oh no, we're not going to have food for the winter. So what do you do? You go and you find whatever tribal deity you've got that controls the crops. right? And you go and you make an offering to that deity. There's a statue representing it. And so perhaps your offering is, you know, a burnt up section of food or a cow or a lamb or something. Or you make a sacrifice, something that's meaningful to you. You, you might perform a certain ritual before that statue. And the thinking is, if I go and do that, then it will placate that god, the god of the crops. It'll, it'll either calm that God down so they stop punishing me, or it'll kind of impress that God and make them bless me. So what happens is when I bring my offering, the God will return a blessing. It's actually very mechanistic when you look at it that way, isn't it? Very transactional. I go and do this, and the God will do that for me. This is how the ancient Near East thought about their gods. And it's the same thing with the Israelites. If I bring the ark, there's my ritual then what will God do? He will grant us victory. A leads to B. I do A, he does B. And again, very mechanistic. Do this, get that. But it's not just mechanistic. It's manipulative. If I do this, then God will have to do that. If we bring the ark to the front line, God will have to fight our battle. If I tap the glass with my fork, my wife will have to make me dinner. So I'm a married man now. 
But as we've seen, it doesn't work. God upends the plate into their lap. They lose the battle. And he causes them not only to lose the battle, but the very thing which for them symbolizes his power and presence, the ark itself. Do you think that he's sending them a message? I certainly think so. It's like he's saying to them, I am not your maid. (laughs) I am not your servant. You cannot manipulate or control me into doing what you want me to do. And for Israel, this is an absolutely shocking outcome. It's, it's actually leads to the darkest day for them since they were slaves in Egypt. You see that borne out in the next couple of scenes. Look at verse 12. There's a man from Benjamin who runs from the battle line. He actually runs 34 kilometers up into the mountains to go and deliver the, the news to Eli. And Eli, the high priest, he's sitting there. It says that he's watching, even though he's blind. Sort of a funny way to describe him, right? He's watching. But you can picture him like he's straining every nerve to hear what it is that's happened on the battle line. And the man comes and he says, there was a great defeat. Eli barely bats an eyelid. He says, your sons are dead, Phineas and Hophni. He barely responds. He's still watching. He's still waiting. What's the news that he's waiting for? Well, here it is. And besides all this, says the messenger, the ark of the Lord has been captured. And for Eli, again, it's like God has been captured, that God has been taken away from them. And so with that news, he falls back on his chair. And the Bible here describes him, verse 18, as a heavy man, like a big man. And so as he falls back, his weight shifts and he breaks his neck and he dies. And kids, this is why you should never, ever, ever, ever swing on a chair. And if you see me swinging on a chair, just say, remember Eli, okay? (laughs) So there's the first scene. And then the second scene, Eli's daughter-in-law is about to give birth uh, to a a son and she calls her newborn son Ichabod. Ichabod, great name for a kid. Why? Oh, look at what it means. Verse 21, it means the glory has departed. God has rejected us. What a great name for a kid. God's left us. There you go. That'll be like my backup plan once we start having kids. That'll be my my second choice in case the first one doesn't work. Ichabod. Sky will love it. It'll be good. (laughs) But you see, you see how they feel, right? Like this is supposed to be a, an occasion for celebration. There's life that's come into the world. And instead, God's left us. God's abandoned us. He's gone into exile away from us, is what this woman's saying. You hear how, how dejected they are at this. They believe that God has departed. It's the darkest day since they're in Egypt. And it's all because they made the wrong assumptions about God and how he works. Now, here's the question for us. Are we in danger of making the same mistake today? Are there any areas of the Christian life where we might be tempted to say, if I do A, then God must do B? That mechanistic understanding of God. You might be one day driving out and uh, you see in the car in front of you something hanging from the rearview mirror. A set of rosary beads. And uh, there are some Roman Catholics that believe that if you sort of have these rosary beads on your person or in your car, then the Lord will protect you from car accidents. Now, we know that's not true, right? Uh, Roman Catholics get in about as many car accidents as the rest of us. (laughs) Rosary beads don't protect us. Neither does a Bible on the bookshelf or a cross around our neck. So we know, any thinking person knows, that these objects don't have this superstitious power to them. 
But what about things that aren't physical objects, but are still a mechanism by which we might try to control or position God? Give an example. Think about the person who's really sick. And they've heard rightly that if they pray, uh, God may heal their sickness. Good thing to do. Pray to the Lord that he might heal. And so they pray night after night after night after night. Good thing to do. Keep persevering in prayer. But in their mind, what they're actually thinking is, if I pray enough, then it'll impress God enough that he will actually hear and heal me. Right? Like, by the, the stacking up of my prayers, eventually I'll position God into such a place that he'll have to heal me. Irrespective of how I actually live, irrespective of how I actually treat him, but if I pray enough, he'll do it. A leads to B. Or what about, say, the, the person who comes to church every single week? Right? They're a very worshipful person. They sing loud. They put their hands up when they worship. Good thing to do. Great. If you're comfortable with that, do it. But they're thinking that in attending church every week and doing all these, these wonderful-looking things, they will get God to fix the problems in their family. A leads to B. What about the businessman who's disinterested in God until he hears that God can help his business, at which point he gives a huge offering to the church? Or what about the student nervous about their exams? And this is never me. What about the student nervous about their exams who promises to read their Bible every single day in the school holidays if only God helps them pass or get the mark they need now? A leads to B. They're all variations of the same problem, right? Can you hear that? It's this, this faulty assumption that I can twist God's arm into doing what I want, irrespective of what he may want. Now, I'll give you one more example of this. We can even do this with the cross itself. And you think, surely not. Oh, yeah, we can. So picture someone in this scenario who, you know, they're repeatedly sinning in some way. And we could list out all the different ways in which we find ourselves repeatedly, habitually sinning, but... but Imagine this person, they're sinning, they've made a habit of it. And we all find ourselves in that place from time to time, right? We seek the Lord's forgiveness, we earnestly repent, we may confess it to a brother or sister that we trust, we receive prayer, we try to grow with it, we struggle through it. But for this person, they're repeatedly sinning and, and kind of wanting to just keep on sinning. They're wanting to nurture this part of their life. And every time that they sin, they say the right words, Right? say, oh, Lord, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. They might even shed a tear or two. They might even say a profession of faith. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But while they say these things and ask the Lord for forgiveness, they actually, in their heart, they're really intending to keep on sinning. And for them, actually, it's just like they found a loophole. Like, aha, I can do what I want if only I say the right words to God. Then I can go on sinning and I'll have his forgiveness every single time. Like God has to forgive me if I say the right words, right? No, he doesn't. No, he does not. Magic words don't save us any more than the Ark of the Covenant saved Israel. Here's the truth, right? 1 John chapter 1, oh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 5. I'll put it up on the screen for you. 
You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin, right? That the perfect son of God, he came to free us from sin, forgive us of sin. Amen. Hallelujah. All who turn to Christ are forgiven. All who have genuine faith in Christ are forgiven. And here's what genuine faith does. No one who abides in him, who has genuine faith, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or know him. Now, don't hear that the wrong way. Of course, we still struggle with sin. <laughs> of course, all of us find ourselves from time to time in places where we've got a habit and it's taken control and all of that. And we can trust that the Lord does forgive us if we truly do trust in Jesus. True. But someone who makes a practice of sinning while mumbling insincere requests for God to forgive them, believing that by saying the right thing, they can still just live how they want. That person can't have any assurance of forgiveness because no one who abides in Jesus will make a habit, a practice of going on sinning. Now, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, and this is the warning, friend, God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. Whether we try to manipulate him with prayer, offerings, professions of supposed faith, or anything else, he will not let himself be manipulated for our own sinful designs. As one theologian puts it, Dow Ralph Davis, whenever the church stops confessing, thou art worthy, and begins chanting, thou art useful, well, then you know the ark has been captured again. Do you see this in your life at the moment? Has the ark been captured again, so to speak? And if so, what should you do about it? Well, we'll get there in just a moment. First, I want to dive back into the story and see, or to show you how God is actually doing something bigger than just this situation in Israel. He's not just disciplining his people. He's also showing his glory to the nations around. And he's doing it all for his people's ultimate good. There's bad news, but it's leading the way to good news. Jump into chapter 5 with me. The Philistines cart away their trophy of war, the Ark of the Covenant. Remember this, this symbol of Israelites, the Israelites' God, Yahweh? It's now theirs. They've captured the God of the Israelites. So they think. And so verse 2, they bring it into the temple of one of their gods, a character named Dagon. Now, who is this, this Dagon guy? Well, Dagon sounds kind of like an ancient Near Eastern word meaning crops. So maybe Dagon is like their god of the crops, like I was explaining before, the guy that you go to and worship and bow before this statue and make sacrifices to make your crops go well. Okay? Maybe he's that god for them. There's another theory that Dagon is actually kind of like the king of the Philistine pantheon, so, meaning he's the king of the gods for the Philistines. Either way, he's obviously really important for them, right? And so they bring the ark, and where do they put it? Yeah, right beside the statue of Dagon, at his right hand, if you want. So imagine you're a Philistine. Imagine you walk into the temple of Dagon, and there you see the statue of Dagon, the king of the gods for you, perhaps. And there at his right hand, you see a new thing, 
the Israelite Ark of the Covenant, this golden box, and you see it at Dagon's right hand. So what are you thinking? You're thinking, aha, Dagon, he's the mightiest God of all, our God. He's conquered the Israelite God. And even more than that, it's at his right hand like a sword. He can use this Ark of the Covenant however he wants. He can use the Israelite God to do what he wants. Ergo, we can use the Israelite God to do what we want by manipulating Dagon and placating and impressing him. Do you see that they're actually making exactly the same mistake as the Israelites did? I wonder what's going to happen. (laughs) Here's what happens. The next morning, the Philistines awake and there's a commotion at the temple of Dagon. You can picture one of the elders like brushing people aside. What's going on? What's going on? And here's what they see. Dagon has fallen down and spun around and he's actually prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. It's like he's worshipping Yahweh, the Israelite God. You can imagine the Philistine elders looking around and just going, maybe it was just the wind? (laughs) Like, maybe this is just a freak coincidence? This is a bit weird, isn't it? And I I just love actually the way they respond to this. In verse 3, chapter 5, verse 3, this sentence is great. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. I think that's great, right? Like, some God. <laughs> he's this God that supposedly defeated the Israelites and, and you know, makes their crops grow. Maybe he's even the king of the gods. And, oh, now I'm just going to pick him up and put him back in his place because he fell over during the night. Now he needs to be helped back up onto the shelf. Some God. <laughs> now, to really drive the point home, Yahweh then does something the very next night. Read these words in verse 4. When the Philistines rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, just like the previous night. But the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left of him. Do you think Yahweh's sending a message? Here's the message he's sending, I think. It's in the words of Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all those who trust in them. Do you hear what that's saying? An idol is nothing at all. Even though you call a statue Dagon, even though you call it the king of your gods or the god of your crops, it doesn't have any power. Look, it falls over like anything else. Look, it has a face, but it can't think. I've cut off its head. Look, it has hands, but it can't do anything in the world. I've cut off its hands. And yet, God says, you're treating the true God as less than that thing? You're treating the true and living God and trying to control him in a way that you control that thing? Preposterous. Well, now you're going to see that those who make and trust idols, as it says in verse 8 there, become like them. That is, they become nothing at all. And so chapter 6, verse 6, oh, sorry, chapter 5, verse 6, uh, God sends tumors among them. Right? In chapter 6, verse 5, we actually learn that these tumors come from rats or mice, If you think back to history, the bubonic plague, 
that, that was a tumour-based disease born from rats or mice. So this could actually be an early bubonic plague-style thing. And so they get these bulbous sort of tumorous growths under their armpits and like down in their groin. Very painful. And as soon as you start seeing these tumors grow, you're as good as dead. Like this wiped out, what, half the population of Europe or something, the, the bubonic plague. Now, once this starts happening, the Philistines realize, oh, this ark that we thought would bring victory, it's actually bringing death and defeat. So we, we've got to we got to move it on. And they, they start playing hot potato with it. Send it off to that city. Send it off to that city. But everywhere they send it, God just does the same thing. What's interesting, however, is how the Philistines then respond to all this. It's kind of funny because they actually seem to have more insight than the Israelites did. In chapter 6, verse 3, the people ask their priests, you know, what should we do about this ark? It's just bringing death. And so the priests say in verse 3, well, we've got to give it back to the Israelites, obviously, but we can't just return it empty. We've got to include a guilt offering. Can you see that there in verse 3? See, the Israelites, when they experienced God's judgment, they just stewed in defeat, right? An old, big, fat, heavy guy fell off a chair and broke his neck, and then uh, a lady named her kid Ichabod, right? Oh, God has left us. Oh, God has departed. Oh, this is so sad. The Philistines go a step further, they actually recognize that they have sinned against this God and there needs to be some kind of reparation. They make a guilt offering. Isn't it interesting? They have more insight than the Israelites, than God's people himself, themselves. Sometimes even non-Christians can understand this reality of sin and God's holiness better than Christians do, better than churchgoers do. I've actually got one unbelieving friend. Uh, we only see each other like sort of once or twice a year. But every time we meet up, he's just, he's like, he's one of those guys that gets to the deep stuff. And so we always end up talking about God. And uh, he's read a bunch of the Bible himself. Uh, he's thought quite a bit about who the Bible says God is. And here's his perspective about God. I find this so interesting. He says, I believe that the God revealed in the Bible is holy. And I believe that people as revealed in the Bible are sinful. And I also believe that if God is who he says he is in the Bible, he's the only true God, and that means he ought to be in charge of my life. But I'm so glad that God's not real, because otherwise he'd be in charge of my life rather than me. <laughs> now, he's wrong about the last bit. He's right about all the rest. And the irony is that you can have someone coming to church, even for decades, who doesn't believe or live out those truths about God, that he is holy, that we are sinful, that we don't measure up, but that he is in charge and that he calls us to live an entirely holy life. Instead, they live like he isn't the king over their lives, like they can have his blessings without paying attention to his commands. Same mistake that the Israelites made. And if that's you, beware. Coming to church and yet treating God as toothless and powerless... Oh, gee, that actually is only going to make you more culpable on Judgment Day, friend. Beware. But here it's the Philistines of all people who realize their guilt before God. And so they make an offering, five golden rats, five golden tumors, bit of a weird one. I don't know if like, you were to offer yourself as the person to make the golden tumor models off. Would you choose the one under your armpit? Or you know, let's not go <laughs> the other place, but... They make these offerings and then they strap 
them to the ark and, and behind two cows. And then without anyone to lead them, these cows actually just lead the whole thing back to Israel. Obvious that God's in control of the whole situation. And what should we conclude? God's glory may have departed Israel, but not because he was captured. Philistines didn't capture him. It's because he chose to leave. He chose to judge Israel's enemies for their sin. He doesn't let them off the hook. And he didn't need anyone to fight for him. He didn't need the Israelites or their army. He doesn't need anyone. Remember, he created everything there is out of nothing. He's entirely self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He wants us. He doesn't need us. And then finally, totally by himself and by his own power, he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. He does good to them by himself. As the famous preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, when you think you have him defeated, then he is actually active. When you think you have him captive, he knocks down your God. He is the God who cannot be restrained, illimitable, absolute, eternal, the living God. We should ask the question again, are you trying to control this God? Whether Philistine or Israelite, non-Christian or Christian, are you trying to control, direct, manipulate this God? The illimitable, absolute, eternal, living God. Can you see how futile that actually is? But we're left with one final question, just quickly. Now that the ark is on its way back to Israel, have the Israelites learnt their lesson? And it would seem, in the first case, no. <laughs> Look at chapter 6, verse 19. The ark comes to this border territory between the Israelites and the Philistines called Beth Shemesh. And God immediately sends judgment yet again. 70 people die. Why? Verse 19. Because they look upon the ark of the Lord. Now, does that seem like a bit of an overreaction? Just looking at the ark? You die? You can't help just looking at something, can you? Well, it's not looking at the ark, notice. It's looking upon the ark. What's implied behind that word, I think, is that they don't just sort of see it and go, oh, wow, the ark is back. Let's celebrate. Let's praise God. They actually sort of come up close and curiosity draws them near and maybe they run their hands along the engravings in the gold and along the, the wings of the cherubim. Perhaps even they open it up and take a look inside. They see the Ten Commandments in there and Aaron's staff and, and all that stuff. They do the things that God had specifically commanded they must not do. Only the priests must handle the Ark of the Covenant. And so he strikes them down. They still aren't respecting and obeying him. They're doing what seems right in their own eyes. But this experience at least shifts something in them. Verse 20, the men of Beth Shemesh, they were looking and they said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, who's, and who can take him up away from, it, from us? See, indeed, when someone realizes that they cannot control this God, they ask the question, who can stand before him? Not me. I can't, not my own two feet. Which then paves the way for Samuel to come in and show them what they must do. You might say, Samuel? Hold on a sec, where's that guy been through all of this? Like he's been MIA through this whole story, hasn't he? We, we sort of, we saw him back in chapter 4 verse 1. Take a look there. Uh, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. 
Right? Remember, he grew up and the Lord spoke to him and chose him and he started to lead. And so he was preaching God's word. But where's he been this whole time? The ark got captured and Israel got defeated. Where's he been? Still preaching God's word. Still doing what verse 1 said he was doing. But I think that his absence through all of this in the story implies that the Israelites weren't listening. Now, however, they're finally ready to listen and hear what Samuel calls them to do in chapter 7, verse 3. Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Just notice a few phrases there. Return to the Lord with all your heart. Put away any other false god and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. The call here is to have an undivided heart that worships God alone. And Samuel's words here aren't just for them. It's a call to all of us, all of us who are prepared to listen. For any of us trying to control or manipulate God, these are the words we need to hear. For any of us thinking we can make a habit of sinning whilst mumbling insincere requests for forgiveness, these are the words we need to hear. And for any of us who, as forgiven sinners in Christ, simply need to keep putting sin to death in our lives, as all Christians must, these are the words we need to hear. Return to the Lord again with all your heart. Put away every other idol, every other false god, every pretender to the throne of God. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. Repent. Truly, fully, ongoingly. With all your heart. And if we're honest, this isn't something we can do ourselves. Right? In fact, it's not something the Israelites could really do themselves. If you trace through the rest of the chapter, you'll see, yes, they do repent. Yes, they confess their sin. They weep. They fast. And God does actually deliver them from the Philistines. It's genuine repentance. They even set up a monument to what they've learned, a big rock that they call Ebenezer, meaning, till now, the Lord has helped us. But the hearts don't change for long. By next Sunday, when Rob's back up here, you'll see that we're just back in the same situation. Over and over again. What do they really need? It's what we really need as well. A new heart. Something only God can give. And it's exactly what God promises today. He does call us to worship him on his terms and not ours, with an undivided heart. But what God commands, he enables. I'll say that again. What God commands, he enables. What he calls us to do, he gives us the means to do. He doesn't leave us alone. And so you get these wonderful words in Jeremiah 24-7, spoken hundreds of years after Samuel was around, but prophesying what we can have today in Christ. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. So this isn't something we create ourselves. We don't resuscitate a new heart into our, our body. It's a gift from God. This is why he sent his son, Jesus. Jesus didn't just come so he can have a better life, more money, 
better relationships, success, whatever else we might want from God and want to twist his arm to get. Jesus came to die for our sin on the cross, taking the judgment you and I deserve. The judgment we see him pour out on the Israelites for their sin and on the Philistines for their sin. That's what we deserve for our sin too. But on the cross, Jesus takes that judgment in our place, the innocent for the guilty, so that we might go free. This is the good news. He takes the death we deserve. And on the third day, he rises to new life, showing that all who trust in him are truly free from God's coming judgment. So we humbly turn to Christ for forgiveness. And then as forgiven people, genuinely trusting in Christ, God gives us a new heart. He gives us the Holy Spirit who renews us on the inside so that we can learn to do bit by bit what God commands. What he commands, he enables by giving us the new heart and the Spirit's help. He gives us the power to stop trying to control God and instead let him rule us. And again, not to be saved, but because we're saved. We'll still fail. There's still forgiveness and still the call to keep repenting. Does that describe your life right now? Do you have this new heart that comes only through knowing Christ and trusting him? Or are you still trying to control God? Is it time to trust in Christ's forgiveness and truly repent from the heart? It might be in a big thing, something that's been dominating your life for some time. It might be simply the next step in continuing to repent, as all Christians must. Whatever it is, today, stop trying to control him. Let him reign in your life. Turn to him with repentance and an undivided heart. I want to give us a moment to reflect on that now and then I'll pray. Oh, dear Lord, we bring ourselves before you as a church and as individuals. We ask that you would be gracious to us because we confess that we all fall short of your standards and your glory and we need the forgiveness that you give us through Christ. So, Lord, we trust afresh and we pray, help us to repent. Help us to repent truly, sincerely, genuinely from the heart. And Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who, who might need to confess something to you or even just confess something to a brother or sister here. Receive help. Be able to take some steps forward. And I pray for anyone as well who doesn't yet know Christ, but perhaps now is realizing now is the time to, to know him and trust him. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in, in bringing them to, to trust in Christ Jesus, even right here, right now. And, uh, and Lord, that you would surround them with people who can help them take the first steps in the Christian journey. In Jesus' name, amen.